Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon the plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and, and, and bitumen for mortar. And, and then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the entire earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. We are in a series exploring faith in science, and this week we are talking about exploring bias. And bias is that uh, tendency or inclination or prejudice, as you do varying levels, that tendency, inclination, or prejudice toward or against something or someone. And think about faith and science, bias is definitely important for science because you're trying to figure out how to uh, eliminate all the variables, get a controlled experiment where there's no bias so I know the answer to the question I'm looking for. Uh, and I want us to start our conversation into bias uh, by hearing a story. Uh, this is a story about Joseph L. Graves, Jr., an African-American Christian and scientist. Uh, Graves was the first person of his family to go to college, and so there was no college path of here's the type of school you go to, here's kind of our family history of going to this school, or here's how you know, admission processes work, or any of that kind of stuff. And so he had to decide where to go to college, and he decided to go to Oberlin College. And if you were to ask him why, he would explain that he went to some, some college fairs. And going to all these booths, only one college had brochures that had images of people who looked like him in the brochure. And so, Oberlin College it was. So I can see myself there, I'm gonna go to Oberlin College, and it's in Ohio. And he went there and he initially had an interest of learning astrophysics. And so his freshman year, he took a course that sounds really fun uh, on, the, on the difficulty level, advanced mechanics and relativity. And so he struggled along with a lot of his peers to make it through this course and, and got a C plus in the course. But what made that unique for him was that on his final exam in red ink, a professor had written, you have no talent for physics you should never take another physics class at this college. And that would be startling, right? That's not a great day. And what Joseph learned was he learned that there was, uh, there was only one other black student in the class, and the other black student got the exact same message. You have no talent for physics. You shouldn't take another physics class at this college. And they had peers who struggled in the class but did not get this definitive statement that they are not talented enough to do this topic. 
And so even though this college had the ability to, to represent someone like Joseph on their brochure, it doesn't mean that there weren't still biases at work, uh, prejudices at work that would still be a part of the experience there. I have to tell you, the other student in the class, the other black student who got that message, uh, he went on to ignore this warning and got a PhD in plasma physics and an appointment at MIT, perhaps using this, this statement as a uh, challenge. Uh, but Joseph decided to switch into biology and he became the first doctorate in evolutionary biology by an African-American student. And he is now an associate dean of research and professor of, of a school in North Carolina. How is it that, that a field even that is so prone to looking for, let's examine all assumptions, let's make sure that we understand all the factors and, and let's find the answer to this or that question, how are they still able to have so much bias that changes the way that they, they teach, the way that they affect students? How does this happen? Well, the news flash is every single person is biased. We like to ignore that fact, but this might be more hesitant at first, but if you want to repeat after me, I am biased, I am biased. You might not sound convinced yet, but wait. You know, bias forms because our brain can't process all of the information that floods over it at any given moment. We have more sensory information, we have more things that we hear, we have more experiences than our brain that can think about those experiences can do with. Uh, you know, it's going too fast. And so our brain has to very, very quickly say, are you an enemy or a friend? Am I safe or am I in danger? And it's doing that in a split second before you have the ability to think through, wait, is that right or not? And so these split second judgments create a lot of our biases. And so I wanna give you a, an experiment example, how quickly this works. Uh, how do you react to this? I've got, maize and blue, Michigan uh, logo there. Some of you immediately when hearing, whether you saw it or whether you're hearing this, when you hear maize and blue, you immediately have a strong supportive reaction, you're having positive feelings, and some of you are booing, either internally or out loud. Some of you, maybe your family or friends of mine from another state, uh, you're, I don't care. Right, right, maybe you have no baggage or interest in this uh, kind of Michigan-Michigan State rivalry. And there's nothing like good or bad in this, it's just your brain through experiences has made decisions about how you're going to react to certain stimuli. And so when you see the, the uh, blue and maize or you see green and white, you might have a reaction and you aren't thinking, I wanna have a positive reaction or I want to boo and be upset. It just is a part of ourselves. And it happens in a lot of ways that we experience the world. And we aren't thinking about those things. You might smell your favorite food, right? And you start salivating, you start getting hungry. But if your friend next to you had a stomach bug when eating that food the last time they had it, their body is going nauseous. And they're not deciding to feel nauseous and you're not deciding to feel hungry your brain is just making that decision before you've even thought about it. 
the same thing goes with people that we meet. Uh, there's kind of a phenomenon about, you know, if you go to a counselor or a therapist, you might find their presence, their, their appearance, their demeanor really comforting. But if I entered that room and I had someone who hurt me in my life who looks like that person, I might be really closed off. And, and I might not even know why I'm closed off. I, I might not have processed that yet. But our brain goes through all of these judgment calls, creates all these biases positively or negatively without us even being able to think about it. It happens in a snap. And so I am biased and we are all biased. Though we are biased in different kinds of ways. You know, if, I don't know if you've ever seen those kind of filters of, of light, like you can get a, different colors of filters and it's maybe a square or maybe it's a circle. And if you shine light through it, only that color of light makes it through. So if you've got a blue filter and you shine white light, which has all color uh, wavelengths in it, only blue light's gonna make it through. Or if you shine a blue light, only blue light's making it through. But if I shine like a red laser pointer, that blue filter stops that red light from getting through. It's this filter that keeps it from making it to the other side. And some of us, we've got certain kinds of biases that have been a part of us, that they're like those filters that we, we just don't let information get past to our thinking ourselves because we have certain filters. And your filters might be affected by your age or uh, your ability or your education level, your religious community, uh, your race, your gender, all sorts of things give us certain kinds of lenses and filters that we don't even realize how often our brain is making all of these judgments for us. And so bias is just a fact of life for us. What becomes dangerous is when we leave them unexamined, when we don't think about the blinders, the filters we've put up in this world that we don't see. And so uh, two weeks ago, which actually I think 13 days ago, uh, a research study came out that was just uh, crushingly sad. A uh, research study came out that was researching mortality rates of infants. So children born at a hospital, did they survive and make it out the hospital door? Uh, the study found that in the U.S., black babies die three times more often than white babies, which is just staggering. What the study also found, though, was that if a, a black baby was cared for by a black doctor, the mortality rate was cut in half. That somehow having someone who sees you and maybe in a different kind of way creates a, a significant level of difference to your survival rate, which is just, I don't even know what to do with that. Um, one of the research authors, Brad Greenwood said, I don't think any of us would suggest as co-authors that the results are manifesting as a result of malicious bias on the part of physicians. I also think that, he goes on to say, I also think that underscores how insidious something like this is. Children are dying as a result of just structural problems, end quote. Joseph Graves, the, the, the scientist that I mentioned earlier, um, he has a book entitled Race Myth, which he talks about from a biological perspective that when you go into the biology, there's not actually fundamental differences between people, uh, that differences in appearance and these kinds of things uh, share more in common, not by random markers on a map, uh, but 
did you live in a hot climate? Did you live in a high altitude? All of these kinds of factors showed more of differences in genetics than any sort of racial category that we construct for people. But we still live in a reality where our eyes process, our ears process, and we lump people into categories. And when they, that goes unnoticed, sometimes it hurts people. Sometimes it harms people when we don't notice the filters or the biases we have. And this gets challenging because we, as a society, often don't want to realize our biases. Uh, here's an example of how I would kind of frame that. For a lot of our history, we have dis decided we wanted a colorblind melting pot. Colorblind because for many of us, we've held up that the highest form of, of living in a diverse world is that I don't even notice that you look different than I do. Right, that that's somehow the pinnacle, that I don't notice the biases or the differences. Um, but often what that means is we've suppressed the biases. We don't want to look at the filters that we've created. And I've shared a story in the past about working at a company where I worked in HR and that I knew of an employee that I was trying to remember their name and a coworker was trying to help me think of who this person was. And they kept guessing white employees and this, this other employee was black. And, and I just didn't want to suggest, oh, they were a black employee and get us further down the road to figuring out who this employee was. My withholding that to act like I didn't see it was not helping us figure out who this was, it was delaying it. Um, but like we live that out where if I don't notice differences, maybe that's a better world as opposed to being able to know and, and, and live in a good way while acknowledging um, differences that exist. And so not only do we not wanna notice them, but sometimes we actively say that we want to force everything to be the same. And we wanna melt it all down, have one kind of common thing and everybody's the same. Uh, and so that takes us into our, our scripture texts. Uh, we're gonna start in Genesis and we're gonna go beyond Genesis. Uh, but the story of the Tower of Babel really runs contrary um, to this idea of melting everything down and, and flattening uh, our societies and our people groups. So first things first, the Tower of Babel story can be a very weird feeling story. When you read through it, maybe you grew up in a Sunday school class, maybe this story felt really strange where you're like, wait a minute, so people are building something and God doesn't like it and so God decides to confuse everybody, make all these different languages and send them off why does God do that? What exactly is wrong with what the humans are doing? All of these questions, I think, come naturally. And I think that the main source of confusion in a story about confusion is that we've lost the context for understanding this story. I do not know the answer for why every Bible translator wants to do this, uh, but the same word that throughout the entire Old Testament gets translated Babylon, like the city of Babylon, here in our story gets translated as Babel. I think it's a word play because of in English when we talk about babbling and stuff like that. But the story is altogether different if you think about it from the framework of, of a Jewish author talking about Babylon. The destruction of the temple, 586, if you're ripped from your homeland, you're ripped from your society and taken into exile to a, a, a nation uh, whose founding myth 
is that their god, Marduk, has victoriously defeated the agents of evil and has created humanity to do the slave labor of the gods. And one of those things is building up a temple in your capital city. And so the ziggurat, uh, uh, there's a ziggurat there in Babylon that often is thought to be kind of a, a kind of background image that maybe this story is meant to, to riff off of. Uh, but it was a giant temple to Marduk, to this other god, that ended up being destroyed and ended up always being in this constant construction zone in which the new king might try to build up this temple and never worked out, and so it's kind of a source of ridicule. But if you can imagine for a second, a nation that rips you from your homeland to prop up its own empire, that drags people from all around the world to one site to build up its own homeland, and that you have to learn the language of the empire, that you have to learn their language to survive in this new world, an image of God rejecting this way of living and this way of ruling and saying, no, go home, fill the earth, speak your languages. I am not uh, supportive of this kind of empire. And I think probably there's an allusion to that we should read more in this way the previous chapter in Genesis gave a list of all these nations and talked about them speaking all these different languages. You move to this chapter, suddenly everyone's speaking one language. It's probably not meant to just be a wooden literal, just take it on its surface. But let's reject bringing all people together into one thing and forcing them to, to learn the language of the empire. Let's send them home to be themselves, to live out God's calling for them in their own languages. Now, if you wanna fast forward Pentecost has a lot of similar images uh, about language and, and people gathering in one place. And the miracle of Pentecost and Acts is that the apostles uh, are not just talking in one language, but Acts says it this way, that the people were amazed and astonished and they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Uh, the miracle is about how to get these Galileans to spread the message of good news to the entire world and that it is taken into each person's language and each person can hear it uh, into their own language. And so we think about Paul. Yes, Paul says we are all equal in Christ, right? Paul famously in Galatians 3 uh, there's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. In Christ, we have unity. But that doesn't mean Paul ministered with blinders on. I love 1 Corinthians 9. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth reading here in 19 through 23. For though, Paul says, for though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win some more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I might share in its blessings. Paul, as one of the earliest missionaries spreading the good news throughout the world. 
understood he needed to take good news and translate it into uh, the communities that he spoke at, right? That when he's in the synagogue or in the public marketplace, I have to figure out how to share that good news in a way that the person in front of me can understand it. And that means that he has to understand those people. And I love, there's so many great images, you know, in Acts and, you know, Paul seeing that statue to the unknown God out in the, out in the, the public space and saying, all right, I can use that. I can talk about there is an unknown God that you don't know and let me talk and tell you about that God. And so Paul understood that, that to be able to minister to the world, we have to understand the world and that they see the world in different kinds of ways. And sometimes that's languages, sometimes that's cultural, sometimes uh, all sorts of social locations. And so I think when we, we hear Christ's call to us in the Great Commission, you know, that all nations uh, is in the purview of that the Great Commission is to all, how are we taking that message and understanding that people have different experiences and speaking to people in those experiences? And so I think uh, I find some comfort and I find some, some value in a different image than the melting pot. Some other sociologists have, have given different kinds of images, uh, but one of them is a symphony. That yes, a symphony becomes a collective whole, but a symphony is not great because you've just made it all one instrument. That each instrument brings its own value, its own characteristics, and its own beauty to make the greater symphony what it is. And so your experiences, your personality, your biology, it's you, and, and you take the air that's around you and you filter it and you, you, you live out uh, differently than other people but you are an instrument in God's great symphony. And so some of us are, are different instruments. Some of us are, are French horns or clarinets or uh, a tuba or a drum or an electronic keypad or a guitar or a harmonica or a kazoo. The beauty of music is that we have so many expressions and those are only felt and known because of individuals. Like without humans here, without ears to translate vibrations, all it is is just vibrations, but somehow our presence uh, that God has given to this, this world and moves in, somehow we bring to life this world in a new way, and each one brings something unique to that. And so uh, we need diversity, and we need, uh, that means we need you, and we means we need your neighbor too. And so I just want to give a few call to actions about bias. Um, first, maybe we can work on stopping just dismissing those we disagree with by acting like they're biased and we're not. Like we do that so much of like, let's say you don't like this news organization, you don't like this company or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, they're so biased. Well, we're all biased. How do we get to the factor where we name, you know, my biases, I have a hard time with their biases. And how do I make sense of the fact that we have different ways of seeing the world? Now, we talked earlier, there's different levels of, of biases in which if we're aware of our own, we can start to, to better navigate the world with less prejudice uh, where we can see the world more fully. And so not only should we stop just kind of dismissing people on bias alone, but how do we start to cultivate where we are looking inward and seeing our own 
biases? How do we pay attention more to uh, experiences of those that aren't like us, who have different experiences, who bring different uh, cultural backgrounds, who bring different language backgrounds? How do we learn from those around us so that we start to see in more, more shades of colors of light, right? That we add more filters to our, to our brain that, uh, you know, I would have never seen it this way, but now that I know you, now that I care about you, now that I've heard your story, maybe I can start to see the world a little bit differently because I've, I've, I've met you and I've encountered you and I've, I've learned from you. And ultimately, I hope Christ is doing that in each of our lives. Like if we just come to our faith as ourselves and we leave just as ourselves without ever having taken on the lens in which Christ operated in the world and saw the world, uh, we are falling short of the people that Christ calls us to be. Not only should we maybe have some more generosity and, and, and not acting like others are biased and not ourselves, and we learn our own biases, we should learn to liken in God's actions in the Bible, how do we resist structures that end up forcing only one lens that, that harms people, that takes people from their homes, that, that doesn't allow them to flourish in the world? How do we resist that temptation? And how do we work for the flourishing of all people uh, that God is going to move and call all so that every knee shall bow? And so may we look with new eyes at this world around us. May we hear with new ears. Uh, we all have our own vantage points. And I need each of us to hear that your vantage point matters. Uh, your story matters. And sometimes, you know, especially in a world in which there's so many dark things happening, pain happening, sometimes we start feeling like we don't matter that we have no place, that none of this matters. Uh, you are an instrument in the divine symphony uh, that God is, is bringing inspiration to, uh, and you are an important part of this creation. And so is your neighbor. Right? It, it becomes bad when we only see ourselves, but just as cherished and loved uh, that you are by God, so is also your neighbor. And so may we look with new eyes at this world around us. Uh, may we live differently. And would you just join me in prayer? Lord, we know that there are times that we have blocked ourselves from hearing your message to us, where we've blocked ourselves from hearing your call that we're supposed to love our enemies, or that we're supposed to care for those who are oppressed. Lord, help us to have the ability to hear and to see you at work in this world. Help us to love you and help us to love like you love. Lord, help us to be a place that that works to see the world through your, your vantage point. Lord, we thank you. We ask your forgiveness where we fall short. And we ask for your courage and support as we try to follow you. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.